0: So, yeah, we're in Jeremiah chapter 14, but if you'll put a finger there and go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, that's an appropriate place to begin tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it's number 5. In your Bibles, chapter 11, verse 11. And uh, the planes have been flying a lot the last couple of nights. They probably will continue tonight, so I'll just we'll just do what we do. I'll try and talk over them if I can. I will pause. So Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven. A land for which the Lord your God cares... The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, from the beginning even to the end of the year. It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, that He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied." Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens, so there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit. And you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Of all the places on earth that the Lord could have chosen for His name and His people Israel, He chose a land that absolutely, 100% relies on rain. It's not a land of, of many springs. It is a land that gets bone dry, if not for the rains early and late that come. The early rains in the spring, the late rains in the fall. I love the description that Moses gives a land of hills and valleys because I can see before me the land of Israel. If you've been in Israel, you see it. It's, it's that rolling, beautiful landscape. But a land that requires, that, that relies upon the rain. In Israel, when the rains stop, the land quickly dries up water, even in wells and cisterns, evaporates in the heat, in the dry heat of the land. Even the Galilee itself, Lake Tenerit, which we call the Sea of Galilee, even that begins to drop, and sometimes precipitously, and that appears to be what's taking place as we open up Jeremiah 14. Jeremiah 14, verse 1, that which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They sit on the ground in mourning. And the cry of Jerusalem has ascended. Their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They have been put to shame and humiliated. And they cover their heads because the ground is cracked. For there has been no rain on the land. The farmers have been put to shame. They have covered their heads. Even the doe in the field has given birth only to abandon her young because there's no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail for there is no vegetation. Before they even entered the land, the Lord made it absolutely clear this land that relied on rains with no drought. And with no drought again and again. And He warned the people again and again, don't turn away to other gods who cannot care for you. Or the land will no drought. I will stop the rains. Having complete control over the rains. Deuteronomy 28, verse 23. The heaven which is over your head shall be like bronze, and the earth which is under you like iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powdered and dust, and from heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. And Moses spoke those words. And the Lord made it absolutely clear, and it's one of these examples of how God ties the physical to the spiritual, using physical lessons that we might understand spiritual things. Now, as we read through Jeremiah, I don't know if you've caught this, apparently, there have been a series of droughts that have increased toward the end of Judah's stay in the land before they go into captivity. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 3. The showers have been withheld, and there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead, and you refused to be ashamed. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 4. How long is the land to mourn, and the vegetation of the countryside to wither, Jeremiah wondered. For the wickedness of those who dwell in it, animals and birds have been snatched away, because men have said, He will not see our latter ending. And so these droughts begin to come one after another because the people were not listening they didn't hear even as the Lord leveled this serious judgment back in Jeremiah 2 verse 13 remember this? He says my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters to hew for themselves cisterns broken cisterns that can hold no water God takes this physical example of drought and says this is what life is like without me I am all the water you ever need, all the refreshment you ever need, all the rain that the land will ever need. It comes from me. So if you turn away from me, what do you have to expect but drought and dryness Now, currently there's good news, at least in the land of Israel today. Ynet News on Monday reports that after seven dry years that sent Israel into somewhat of a water austerity regiment, the water authority head, Alexander Kushner, announced last week the water crisis in Israel is over. According to the water authority, while the heavy rains of late were a blessed addition to Lake Kinneret, it is the fast-growing desalination and water reclamation industry that is responsible for bringing Israel back from the brink. This is interesting. Seven years. It was seven years ago that I first went to the land. And every time we've always shared the concern with the tour guides and with Israelis, the concern for water. They have been in a very difficult place for seven years. And now suddenly they seem to have a great deal of water. They seem to be in a good, a good place. The, the Galilee is rising up to acceptable levels finally. And boy, those brilliant Israelis, their desalination plants and their water reclamation plants are top-notch, best in the world. And they take poor water and bad water and wasted water and they turn it around and make it drinkable and fresh. They've done some amazing things. But I found it interesting that this water authority head, Alexander Kushner, said that the desalinization and the water reclamation plants are what brought Israel back from the brink. Interesting. Back from the brink. The truth is, Israel today is still very dry. Very dry indeed. Ezekiel might even say Israel is bone dry. Because spiritually, while physically they've got water, physically they're in a better place, spiritually there is a great thirst in the land. This morning in the news, Arutz Sheva, the Israel news source, said the acting Knesset head Benjamin Ben-Eliezer asked the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to urge U.S. President Barack Obama to address the Israeli Knesset during his visit to Israel this March. It'll be the first time Obama has gone to the land this March said, the nation of Israel definitely thirsts to hear the U.S. president speak to them directly. What a contrast that is. Going back to the days of King David. Psalm 63 verse 1, David said O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, David got it. He understood that where there's dryness, the only answer for slaking the thirst is the Lord. It's going to the Lord Himself. Now again, I say this with great love for the Jewish people, but until they thirst after the Lord, until they yearn for Yeshua HaMashiach, until they recognize the water they need, does it come from desalination plants, and does not come from water reclamation plants, It comes not by Jewish ingenuity, but only by the living God. Until that day, they will be thirsty. There will continue to be a thirst in the land. Now in Jeremiah 14, God is using the environment to get this message across. Where do you go when the sky is like bronze? I think that's a great picture. The sky is like bronze and the earth is like iron and your throats are dry. Where do you go? You go to the water source. Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. You Bible students are familiar with Jesus' words in John 7:37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so what we see tonight in the drought is sin and rebellion leave a person dry, a voice cracking, while the Lord offers the river of delights, the living water of his Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind as we continue on. Verse 7. Jeremiah responds to the Lord's explanation of the drought, a direct result of the people's sin and rebellion. And he says, although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. Truly our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. And he's right. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. And Jeremiah gets it. It's our sin that's done this. Our iniquities that are testifying against us. He says in verse 8, O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? Why are you like a man dismayed, like a mighty man who cannot save? Yet you are in our midst, O Lord, and we are called by your name. And Jeremiah cries, Do not forsake us. Oh, honest Jeremiah. And he says things, he comes right up to the line. He says things to the Lord sometimes that I think, I'm not sure I would say that. He gets real close, but always turns around and says, this is what it seems like, this is how it feels, but I know it's not true, Lord. I know you're not a stranger to the land. I know you're, you're not a man dismayed or a, a mighty man who can't save. I, I know this, and he turns around and says, we're called by your name, do not forsake us. Didn't the Lord tell Jeremiah to stop praying for the people? Do you recall that in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16? Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 14? Two times already, God has clearly said, Jeremiah, stop interceding for the people. Knock it off. Don't pray. And Jeremiah keeps on praying. <laughs> Jeremiah is passionate for this people, he loves this people. But he's not listening, and so the Lord restates this for Jeremiah again, verse 10. Thus says the Lord God to this people, Even so, they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now He will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. And so the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. God says, when they fast, I'm not going to listen to their cry. When they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Jeremiah, you can keep praying, but it's too late. I'm not listening. It does not help. It won't make a difference. The die is cast. The judgment is set. Stop praying. So finally Jeremiah is starting to get this, but he's going to go a different approach. He's going to try the blame game. Verse 13. But, ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in the land. It's the prophet's fault, Lord. And then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Which means that some of the false prophets absolutely believe what they're saying is true. They're caught up in the hyper-spirituality of it. They think they're hearing the Lord, but they're not. Verse 15, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in My name, although it was not I who sent them, Yet they keep saying there will be no sword or famine in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall meet their end. The people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. And there will be no one to bury them, neither them nor their wives nor their sons nor their daughters, for I will pour out their own wickedness on them. I was reading that and thinking there are always voices out there clamoring to lead people astray. There are always false prophets. In fact, false prophets should be, and are, I believe, on the rise in these last days. There are always false teachers. There are always those who say what they think people want to hear, whether or not it is from the Lord. Again, we need to understand something that Judah needed to understand, and certainly Jeremiah did. Blame doesn't lift personal responsibility. Blame never lifts personal responsibility. You will not, nor will I be able to stand before the Lord and say, but my pastor said, but the church leader said, but but this teacher, but that teacher, I did this because they, he, she. It doesn't work. Blame doesn't lift responsibility. And we should know that going all the way back to the first attempt at blame. Genesis 3.12 The woman you gave me! She gave me from the tree and I ate. Do you realize that Adam does a double blame right there? The woman you gave me! It's her fault and yours because you gave her to me! Cracks me up! And so God turns His attention to Eve and Eve says, The serpent deceived me and I ate! And so we might say, The false prophets lied! blame never gets off the ground with God I am solely responsible for my faith before him and so are you we all must stand before him Romans 14 12 each one of us will give an account of himself to God Hebrews 4 13 there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do and you know that thought used to terrify me I think I've told you before, I, I had this picture of this long line of people, and way up in the front, a big video screen, and the Lord putting up on the screen all the sins of everybody as we have to confess, and that to, truly is a child that scared me. I had that thought, that picture in my mind, until I realized there is one who removes the blame completely. Colossians 1.19 For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is Jesus. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, listen, through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless. And beyond reproach. He takes the blame. I don't have to blame others. I don't even have to take the blame myself. Jesus has taken the blame. He makes me blameless. Praise the Lord. Verse 17. God says you will say this word to them. Let my eyes flow down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow, with a sorely infected wound. If I go out to the country, behold, those slain with the sword. If I enter the city, behold, diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest have gone roving about in the land that they do not know. Now I want to explain something to, here to you. This is interesting because verse 17 starts out, you will say this word to them. But then the rest of 17 and 18 seem to be more the experience of Jeremiah rather than the words of God. Some commentators say that's what's going on and they say, you will say this word to them actually refers back to the paragraph before it. God tells them what to say and then says, and say that, what I just said. And I don't think that's the case. I think what we're looking at here is not just the experience of Jeremiah, but Jeremiah telling the people the experience of the Lord. Look at verse 17 again. The Lord says, Jeremiah, say this to them. Let my eyes flow down with tears night and day and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow. So two things to note here. First off, the tears of Jeremiah. Are these Jeremiah's tears or are they the Lord's tears? They're Jeremiah's tears. But the Lord is instructing Jeremiah to let his tears flow. Lamentations 3.48, Jeremiah writes, "...My eyes run down with streams of water because of the destruction of the daughter of My people." And the Lord is saying to Jeremiah, "...Let them see your passion. I want them to see your tears. Say this to them, that My eyes are pouring down with tears." But that great love in Jeremiah's eyes is reflective of the eyes of the Father. You see, the people wouldn't be able to see God's eyes in tears. And Jeremiah could say, well, God's crying over you, and that's one thing. But for the people to see the tears in Jeremiah's eyes, it's once again a physical representation of a spiritual truth. While Jeremiah weeps for the people, the Father's heart is breaking for them as well. By the way, he uses this phrase, the virgin daughter of my people, which again shows the heart of the Lord but that phrase the daughter of my people is almost exclusive to Jeremiah Isaiah uses it one time in Isaiah 22 verse 4 the rest of the time it is all in Jeremiah and Lamentations but there's a better translation than the daughter of my people and that is the daughter that is my people the daughter that is my people God refers to Israel in this instance as his daughter well why not his son? Because there's something even more protective of a father toward his daughter even than his son. You know, the father says to his son, fuck up boy, punches him in the arm, you're going to be fine. But when the daughter's hurt, the father becomes ultra-protective. And that's the sense we have of God here. Just as the physical drought again reflects the spiritual dryness of the people, so Jeremiah's tears reflect the heartache of God discipline and punishment really do hurt the parent. I had the funniest situation with David yesterday. I've been down Monday and Tuesday kind of sick and Cheryl asked me is there anything you want? She's running running to the store and I said no, no, I'm fine. She came back violating our diet with a chocolate donut. <laughs> Bless her. And it was on the counter and I was going to go have my donut get my little glass of milk and and relax and enjoy that. David walks into the kitchen, and he sees a chocolate donut, which he hasn't seen for about seven months now. <laughs> and he reaches up to the counter, as if to grab it. Reaches up and says, "What's that?" I didn't raise my voice or anything. I just went ah, ah, ah like that. Well, he wasn't expecting that, and it scared him. I mean, just totally little David reaching up ah, he went, and his eyes welled up with tears. And he turned around and looked at me and I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 it's it's okay. And of course, so I had to give him half my donut. <laughs> but I just you know, I just thought about how how a father's heart with his kids, you know. We love our kids, we don't like to hurt our kids. We don't want to do something that brings, you know, terror into their little hearts. And the same is true of the Lord. He is a father who loves his kids. So the tears of Jeremiah. The second thing to note here is the wares of the prophets. The wares of the prophets. W-A-R-E-S. As in things that you sell. For it says at the end of uh, verse 18, prophet and priests have gone roving about in a land they do not know. Gone roving. That's one word in the Hebrew. Sahar. And it means to travel about as either a trader or as a beggar. The implication here, they've gone roving, is, is twofold. That they travel about as traders, but they also travel about as beggars. Originally, traveling about as traders to foreign lands, trading foreign idols. But now God says, because of that, the priests and the prophets, they're going to travel about in this land that they don't know as beggars. They will be beggars in Babylon. By the way, note to leaders, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls, listen to this, as those who will give an account. James 3, 1, Let not many of you be teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. I said a few moments ago, blame does not lift personal responsibility, but the Lord does hold failed leadership to account. And if you're leading someone, whether it's a parent leading a child in the home, or leading in the workplace, or leading in a church fellowship, you are going to be held to a higher account, to a higher standard. God does hold you responsible, although He holds all of us responsible to Him, He holds the leaders responsible as well. Verse 19, Jeremiah speaking says, Have you completely rejected Judah? Or have you loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that we are beyond healing? We waited for peace, but nothing good came and for a time of healing, but behold, terror. We know our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against You. Do not despise us for Your own namesake. Do not disgrace the throne of of Your glory, that is the temple. Remember and do not annul Your covenant with us. So see what Jeremiah is doing. He's trying to blame the prophets. And now he's turning it back on the Lord and saying, look, Lord, for Your sake if not for the people, if not because of the false prophets, at least, Lord, for Your sake, do something here. Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain, or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not You, O Lord our God? Therefore we hope in You, for You are the One who has done all these things. Now again, don't fault Jeremiah for interceding for the people. He loves the people. He's just doing his best, hoping to stand for his people. But he's still interceding after three warnings to stop it. So God gets even more serious with him in this ongoing intimate conversation between prophet and God. Verse 1 of chapter 15 Then the Lord said to me, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be found with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Moses and Samuel. Why these two men? These two stand as Israel's greatest intercessors. If you wanted to choose any two men out of Israel who were great prayer warriors for the people, it's Moses and Samuel. Psalm 99, verse 6. It says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. The greatest intercessors of Israel, Moses and Samuel. Moses interceded for the people of Israel, asking God to stay his wrath on the nation. Exodus 32. Remember that when God says, I'm done, I'm finished with Israel, it's over. Moses, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says, no, Lord, please don't. And he literally stands between the Lord and the people. A great intercessor. Samuel, prayed for the Lord to defeat the nation's enemies. 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 12. God is saying, Jeremiah, not even the prayers of Mo and Sam will make any difference right now. Verse 2, And it shall be when they say to you, where should we go? Then you are to tell them, Thus says the Lord. Now, pay close attention to this next section. Those destined for death to death, those destined for the sword to the sword, and those destined for famine to famine, and those destined for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of doom, declares the Lord. The sword to slay, and the dogs to drag off, and the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them an object of horror among all the kingdoms of the earth, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Because of Manasseh? Didn't we just say that each person is responsible for themselves? And now God is blaming all of Jerusalem and, and all of Judah for what Manasseh did. Fly south. Go south. Because of Manasseh, Manasseh, Manasseh gang is the root. But the people freely ate the fruit verse 5. Indeed, who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will mourn for you? Or who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You who have forsaken me, declares the Lord, who keep going backwards so I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am tired of relenting. I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. They did not repent of their ways. Note that. That's the key. Their widows will be more numerous before me than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of a young man, a destroyer at noonday. I will suddenly bring down on her anguish and dismay. She who bore seven sons pines away. Her breathing is labored. Her sun has set while it was yet day. She has been shamed and humiliated. So I will give over their survivors to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. seven sons is a Hebrew picture of complete happiness. Oh, a woman of seven sons is a completely happy mother, a completely happy father to have seven sons. But that happiness, the Lord said, is ravaged by the sword, leaving this mother gasping for her last breath. And this mother may be a picture of Jerusalem, Jerusalem gasping as the people of Judah are taken out of the land. I so want you to hear this. There's a greater picture here in these several verses, verse 2 through 9, a greater picture implied than simply the Babylonian captivity. There is something big going on here, something worth investigating. I believe the Lord has more in view here than simply the generation of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Because this whole section shares an eerie similarity with the coming judgment. What you know of as the tribulation. An object of horror back in verse 4. It's used 11 times in Jeremiah. An object of horror. More in Jeremiah than anywhere else. It's Zahavah. Za'avah, An object of horror. Jeremiah first uses it to describe or the Lord uses it to describe his own people I will make you an object of horror then Jeremiah uses it to describe Basra in Edom I will make you an object of horror what's the deal with Basra? Basra is the first place Jesus steps down in judgment thirdly he uses object of horror Za'avah, for Babylon all three of these are players in the tribulation Deuteronomy 28 25, the Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways from before them. Seven ways, not one direction as in toward Babylon, but seven directions as in completely fleeing throughout the entire earth. And you will be zaava, an object of horror, an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the world. And look back at verse 2. Those destined for death to death. Those destined for the sword to the sword. Those destined to famine to famine. Those destined for captivity to captivity. Now there's a similar verse in the book of Revelation, Revelation 13.10, which says if, if anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here, John writes, is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now when Jeremiah comes off his judgment in Revelation, John declares it as an encouragement to the saints of the tribulation. The tribulation saints, that is those people who miss the rapture of the church, but come to faith in Jesus just the same and are in the tribulation here on earth. But there's more, a more intriguing parallel to these four punishments. Death, the word death there implies death by pestilence. And death by the sword and death by famine and death by captivity Bible students listen Revelation 6 1 through 8 Antichrist comes on the scene and he is followed by four horsemen Antichrist rides to conquer then follows the red horse of war then the black horse of famine and finally the pale ashen horse of death which is a death by pestilence gang it's captivity, famine, the sword and death so the same thing God describes here for Judah, as they would be dragged off into captivity in Babylon, the same thing is what is described in Revelation 6, which comes in the first half of the tribulation. Bible students, you know this. Seven years of tribulation. The first half, three and a half years take place in Revelation chapter 6. Picking up in Revelation chapter 7 and forward, you get the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And in those first three and a half years, we see exactly what Jeremiah prophesies here. Death, famine, the sword, and captivity. Only it's on a grand global scale. Revelation chapter 6 verse 8 says, authority was given to them over a fourth of all the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts. Of the earth. Note that in verse 3 of Jeremiah uh, 15. I will appoint over them four kinds of doom the sword to slay, the dogs to drag off, the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. So the wild beasts of the earth are attacking and going after people in the first half of the tribulation. Exactly what Jeremiah says here to Judah. This is more than just a parallel game. Down in verse 7. I will winnow them with a winnowing fork at the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. And let it sink in. They did not repent of their ways. That is a hallmark of the rebellion in Revelation. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. After the sixth trumpet judgment. There are three series of judgments in the book of Revelation. There are the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl or vial judgments. Three different sets. And in the second set, the trumpet judgments, after the sixth one, Revelation 9.20 tells us the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Revelation 9.21, they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their immorality. In Revelation 16, verse 9, after the fourth vile or bold judgment, so in the last series of judgments, four go by, it says men were scorched with fierce heat. They blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Revelation sixteen, eleven. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. What we see happening in the judgment of Judah is a snapshot of the judgment that is global, the judgment that is to come. But the same issue is at hand. The people of Judah did not repent. They were so entrenched in their rebellion that they refused to repent. In the same way this world will be so entrenched in rebellion, no repentance. I've called it before the point of no repentance. Jeremiah then cries out in verse 10, says, Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. I have not lent nor have men lent money to me yet everyone curses me. What is he saying? I haven't done anything wrong. He's crying out whining again, Lord I haven't done anything here. All I did was tell him what you said to tell me and nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll eat some worms. Verse 11. The Lord says, Surely I will set you free for good. Surely I will cause the enemy to make supplication to you in a time of disaster and a time of distress. What's he saying? Jeremiah, you just do what I tell you to do and don't worry about them. Don't concern yourselves with them. Psalm 37 verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Just rest in the Lord. That's what he's saying to Jeremiah. Proverbs 16, verse 7 says When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and leave the curses of man to God. He will take care of it. The Lord turns His direction back to Judah and He says, Can anyone smash iron? Iron from the north? Or bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give for booty without cost, even for all your sins and within all your borders. And then I will cause your enemies to bring it into a land which you do not know, for a fire has been kindled in my anger And it will burn upon you. As the Hebrew writer says, our God is a consuming fire. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an awesome God. This is Babylon in view, verses 12 through 14. Just as no one can break iron or bronze with their bare hands, so Judah would not be able to break the battle lines of Babylon all of the treasures of Judah will go to Babylon as payment for Judah's sins. And then in verse 14, they themselves will go into the land they do not know. Now, verses 15 through 21, the rest of the chapter, we're going to save for Sunday morning. So go ahead to chapter 16, verse 1. In this chapter, the Lord is going to place three restrictions on Jeremiah the prophet. And the first one is, no family. No family. The word of the Lord came to me saying, You shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bear them, and their fathers who beget them in this land. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by sword and famine. And their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. Now we addressed this before. But by restricting Jeremiah from a wife and kids, by saying no family for you, God is protecting him. God is keeping His servant, His prophet, from the heartache of the death of His wife. The death of his children, which surely would happen when Judah falls. No family, Jeremiah. I point that out again just to remind you all. When it seems like God is keeping something good from you, chances are He's keeping something bad from you. Best just to say, Your will be done. Whatever you want for me, Lord, that's what I want. Jeremiah 29:11. You all should know it well by now. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a no, no family. Number two, no funerals. No funerals. For thus says the Lord, do not enter a house of mourning, do not lament or console them, for I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord, my loving kindness and my compassion. Both great men and small will die in this land. They will not be buried. They will not be lamented. Nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. Men will not break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. No funerals. That's restriction number two. By the way... um, Verse 6 talks about shaving the head and gashing yourself. That was a pagan funeral act, a pagan act of mourning. And God had already forbidden Israel from doing it at all. Back in Deuteronomy 14, verse 1 You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. So, gashing yourself and shaving your head, you can't do that as an act of mourning. I was thinking about that. Why do you suppose God forbade the children of Israel from this kind of mourning? I'll let Jesus answer it for us. Matthew 22, 31, Jesus said, Regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken by your God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And you know what? We are not to mourn as other people mourn. Especially when it's a brother or sister who has died. They have gone on to be with the Lord. We were watching the video a few weeks back of the very first Sunday here. And I was noting Hank Sakinga. You know, Hank, that gentle giant playing that tiny little classical guitar. And playing it so beautifully. And thinking, yeah, I miss having him around here. But praise the Lord, he's with the Lord. Praise the Lord, our brother knows what we all long to know. So we are not to mourn as other people do. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. However, in this case, Jeremiah is restricted even from acceptable mourning. You can't have a family, Jeremiah, nor are you allowed to go to any funerals anymore. First, as a sign that once Jerusalem finally did fall, no one would be able to organize funerals because no one would be available to do it. And so Jeremiah is this living example. He can't go to funerals because there aren't going to be funerals. The carnage will be so bad. But secondly, and note this, he is not to go to funerals as a sign that the Lord was withdrawing peace, loving kindness, and tenderness from the land. Note this in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, do not enter a house of mourning or go to lament or to console them Which, by the way, is a very social thing among the Jewish people. I mean, second only to a wedding, the whole community came out for the funeral. Everybody except Jeremiah. And the Lord says, for I have withdrawn my peace, he says, my loving kindness, my compassion. To me, verse 5 is one of the most unsettling verses of this entire chapter. For the Lord to withdraw peace, shalom. Loving kindness, chesed, that's the Hebrew word for grace. And compassion, racham, the Hebrew word for tenderness. God withdraws these three. And it's the same thing as leaving people utterly dehydrated, it's spiritual drought. God pulling out his compassion. It's like the drought that chapter 14 began with. And that's what this world will be like without the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's another reason I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Back in November of 2011, you may recall, if you were here, we went through 13 or 14 reasons. Why to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? Now every now and then I kind of add one more. Well, here's another one to add to the list. I think we're up to about number 72. I believe the church will be caught up before the rise of Antichrist and the tribulation because the restraining influence must first be removed. And for the restraining influence to be removed before Antichrist shows his ugly head... Means the church will not be here. Read to you again, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse six. You know what restrains him now. Him, that's the man of lawlessness, Antichrist. You know what restrains him now. Paul writes, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way this restraining influence we talked about it on Sunday we talked about how critical it is for us as the church to be used by and to be an aspect of that restraining influence only the Holy Spirit only the Spirit of God has the power right now to sufficiently hold back the tide of evil even though that lawlessness is already at work it's being held back to a degree by the power of the Holy Spirit but saints you know this The Holy Spirit is given as living water for all those who come to Jesus to drink. That is the church. And so you can't remove the Holy Spirit without removing the church. You can't remove the church without removing the Holy Spirit. And since the restraining influence, whether it's the church or the Holy Spirit, I believe both, when the restraining influence is removed, then Antichrist floods onto the scene, then the tribulation kicks off, as Revelation 6-19 through teaches us. Therefore, the church will not, cannot be here. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 6 and 7 is interesting, and it's confounded scholars, because it says, you know what restrains Antichrist? Well, what, referring to the restraining influence as though it were an it... And then in the next verse it says, He who now restrains, referring referring to a person. Well, is it an it, or is the Holy Spirit a person? Well, the Holy Spirit is the he. The church is the it. The what. What restrains him? The church does. And he who restrains, the Holy Spirit. Again, working through the church David had said in Psalm fifty-one, eleven: do not cast me away from your presence do not take your Holy Spirit from me and guess what Jesus promised he wouldn't this is just such great news Jesus said I will ask the Father John 14 and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him but you know him I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you. Listen, if Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, then when the Spirit leaves, He's not going to leave us as orphans. And so we will go. When the church leaves the earth in the rapture, the Holy Spirit leaves with us. The restraining influence will be completely removed and withdrawn. And with that, the peace, the loving kindness and the tender compassion of God will be gone as well. And then as Jesus said, Matthew 24, 21, there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. I, I, I can't even imagine a world void of the Holy Spirit. I can't imagine a world void of the tenderness of God or the grace of Or the compassion. Or the peace. No family, Jeremiah. No funerals. And finally, number three, no feasting. Verse 8. Moreover, you shall not go into a house of feasting to sit with them, to eat, and to drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am going to eliminate from this place before your eyes. And in your time, the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness and the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride. No feasting, Jeremiah. Turn down all invitations. You're not allowed to go. It reminds me of what Jesus said Matthew 24, 37. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage... "...until the day Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be." And by the way, that is stage one of His second coming. Stage one, what are you talking about? He comes in two stages. First, He comes to meet us in the clouds. Then He will come to actually set foot on the earth and establish His kingdom when the son of man comes in the clouds and we meet him in the clouds and he takes us away in the rapture of the church people will up to that point they'll be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage just as in the day until noah entered the ark and then suddenly the door closed and the rain began and jesus says in matthew 24:40 then there will be two men in the field one will be taken and the other one will be left two women grinding at the mill One will be taken. One will be left. And those who are taken, gang, I absolutely believe, talks about the rapture of the church. Bottom line is this. As with Judah's captivity, right up to the rapture, people will party on, but suddenly, the moment that the restraining influence is withdrawn, the moment that the church is taken out, the moment the Holy Spirit is gone from planet Earth family and funerals and feasting all will give way to tribulation and the parallel here is very interesting to me verse 10 now when you tell this people all these words they will say to you for what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us and what is our iniquity or what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God and such is the attitude of the person in rebellion. What have I done wrong? So I party a little bit. So I do this, so I do that. I mean, come on, What? what's the big deal, God? The Lord answers, verse 11, Then you are to say to them, It is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them, but me they have forsaken and have not kept my law. Verse 12, You too have done evil more than your forefathers, For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers. And there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will grant you no favor. And it is all due to the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Speaking of the evil heart, when we get to chapter 17, which we won't tonight... Chapter 17, verses 1-11 through is the Bible's final word on the nature of man. If you've ever been involved in a debate, is the nature of man good? Is it bad? Or is it indifferent in the middle? What what is the true nature of man? God makes it absolutely clear in Jeremiah 17. Verse 9 of Jeremiah 17, he says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, it is not all doom and gloom. For all this judgment, restoration is coming. Verse 14. This is marvelous. Watch this. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But... As the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where He had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land which I gave to their fathers. Understand this. He is not talking about the return from Babylon. Because recognize it to this day, what is the deliverance that the Jewish people still talk about? Egypt. They still keep Passover they still look to Egypt as the time of great deliverance the Jewish people do not look to the deliverance of Babylon and in the same way Jeremiah is not talking about deliverance from Babylon he mentions in verse 15 all the countries and he also mentions in verse 15 the sons of Israel not just Judah Not just the southern kingdom. All the sons of Israel from all the countries of the world indicates a bigger return. There is a time coming and it will be in the millennial kingdom when Israel will no longer look back to Egypt and they won't look to Babylon either. They will look to their rescue, their restoration from the entire world back into the land and entering into the millennial kingdom. That's what they will remember. How God ultimately saved them for the eternal kingdom. Verse 16. Behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are all on their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I will first, and note this, I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land, and they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. I will doubly repay, he says. The Hebrew word is Mishneh, and it means I will twice repay, Or I will a second time repay. What's he talking about? Twice. Babylon and Rome. Two times. Babylon and Rome. Isaiah said the same thing. Prophesying in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the islands of the sea. God doubly repays Israel for their sin. 586 B.C. A.D. 70. What's next is Israel's restoration. And Jeremiah is absolutely blown away by this. He hears this. And in verse 19, he just cries out, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of distress. To you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but falsehood, futility, and things of no profit. In other words, the nations are finally going to get it. What is the point of all of this? God has taken us through three chapters here. When we come down to verse 20 and 21, this is what it comes to. God says, Can man make gods for himself? They're not gods. Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. That's the bottom line. That's the whole issue. God wants to make Himself known. He has always wanted to make Himself known. And He calls Israel His people and says, I want you to know Me. And they keep rebelling and He keeps saying, but I want you to know Me. And I'm going to do this that you may know that I am the Lord. How do we know the Lord now? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son John 1:18 No one has seen God at any time the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father he has explained him And so praise the Lord it is in the person of Jesus Christ that we know the Lord that we can walk with the Lord, that even by the Spirit of the Lord, poured out into our lives like living water, we know Him. And we don't go through the kind of drought that Israel had to go through, and yet will go through. Because we know Him. And so I'll leave you with this. Jesus said, Revelation 21.6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. And I pray, Lord, despite the noise of the plains and the the loudest, I just pray that You'll take Your words tonight and that You will impress them on our hearts in such a way that we recognize Your passion to be known. And Father, may we know You more. Father, we thank You for the refreshing living water. We thank You for that river of water that literally wells up from within us, Your Spirit, Lord. We pray that we will not deny nor quench the work of Your Spirit in this fellowship or in our lives. We ask, Father, for a continual outpouring of Your Spirit on us, that in this world we may reflect You, that before we are drawn out, we may be used by You to restrain evil and proclaim the Gospel in all its glory. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us in Jesus. Thank You for Your Word, Father. And I pray Your blessing upon Your people in Jesus' name. Amen.